Welcome to the I Create Daily Podcast. I'm Leora Alderson. And I'm Devani Alderson. We're your co-hosts on this journey of creativity and productivity. I Create Daily is for artists in every genre of creating, from musicians to writers, crafters to inventors, bloggers to entrepreneurs. I Create Daily is a movement for creators serious about your art. If you're into creating anything, this podcast is definitely for you. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Hello and welcome to another episode of the I Create Daily podcast. Uh, I'm Devani Alderson and the I Create Daily podcast is a movement for creators serious about their art. And And I'm Leora Alderson and our guest today is Mark Gober. Did I pronounce that right, Mark? You did. Okay, I forgot to ask you in advance. Mark Gober is an author whose worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he learned a phenomena that threatened the prevailing view in science that consciousness comes from the brain. After researching extensively for nearly a year, he became convinced that a paradigm shift was in order. Biology does not produce consciousness. Rather, consciousness produces biology. Mark is a partner at Sherpa Technology Group, a firm that advises businesses on mergers and acquisitions and strategy. He previously worked as an investment banking analyst in New York. Mark has been quoted for his opinions on business and technology matters in Bloomberg Business Week and elsewhere, and has authored internationally published business articles. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University, where he was captain of the tennis team. Mark also represents two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Dr. Irvin Laszlo's Institute of New Paradigm Research as Director of Corporate Relations. Mark Gober's journey led him to write the book, An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces produces Consciousness, where he explores compelling scientific evidence from a diverse set of disciplines, ranging from psychic phenomena to near-death experiences to quantum physics and beyond. We love this topic. We love this book title. We haven't, unfortunately, yet had a chance to read it yet, but we are definitely going to be diving into it shortly after this podcast because it is a topic we love and have actually written about in terms of the quantum physics of consciousness, belief, the power, and and all of that. So we're really looking forward to diving into your story, Mark, beginning with, I mean, like, none of what you were doing in the world, right, connected with this, right? That's right. On the surface, it doesn't look like I should be writing a book on consciousness, right? (laughs) Right. But except that you live it kind of in the world of mentality, like, you know, being polarized mentally and, you know, being a thinking person, you know, it makes sense from that standpoint that you kind of dove into this, but start with that. Like, tell us, like, how did you begin that journey? Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't a planned journey, but I think the interests, you can trace them all the way back to even my college days. I almost majored in astrophysics because I was so interested in how the universe worked, but I didn't have time to do that because of my commitments on the tennis team. It was a very demanding program. So instead I studied behavioral economics. Um, So I kind of pushed those interests aside, but always thought about meaning. And where I came out on things was that the mainstream perspective in science is that when our body dies, that's it. Our consciousness is gone. So any memories that we have, they're wiped out. That's just the perspective. And if you really think about that, it, it, there's no meaning that you can ascribe to life other than rationalizing it. So something that's really good happens in your life or something that's really bad, in the end, you're going to be dead. And I know that sounds awful, but that's what's implied by this perspective of consciousness is limited to the brain and produced by the body. So that's what I thought was true. And I had a very 
bleak outlook on life because that's what I thought the science suggested. And it was about two years ago, um, August 2016, when I first heard a podcast that challenged those ideas. And it didn't change my life or anything the first time I heard it. It was a woman named Laura Powers who has her own podcast called Healing Powers in which she, ta- she has her own psychic abilities. And it was the first time I had heard anyone talk about that. And she interviews other people who have those abilities and who have had experiences. So I would listen to her podcast just because I was looking for something new, uh, driving to and from work from San Francisco where I live to Silicon Valley where the office is located. And I would just leave the podcast on. And it was maybe a few weeks in when I realized, wait a second, how are all of these people that she's interviewing independently describing a picture of reality that I've never heard of? Mm. I couldn't reason that they were all lying or that they were all delusional. So I said, okay, I need to look at this because if any of this is real, then I have to rethink things. Mm-hmm. And so I started to explore the science behind it, which we can discuss today. Credible sources like Princeton University and the former Dean of Engineering, the University of Virginia, the US government. And this is the kind of research that I have in the book. Wow. Um, so I spent a year researching, well, like you mentioned, wow. we're just trying to understand reality because the more I got into it, the more I realized that my old paradigm and the prevailing paradigm of most of Western thinking, including scientific thinking, has this perspective, which I don't think is correct anymore in a very big way. Um, but as I told friends about this information, and at first I was not comfortable talking to people about this because right. it's so outlandish, especially in the business world right. and the, the communities that I've grown up in, people don't talk about these things. Right. But once I had my story straight and I had the evidence, I got very positive reactions from people. Hmm. Wait a second. Hmm. And people would say, wow, Mark, our conversation from a month ago, I haven't stopped thinking about it. And it's changing how I look at things. So I got enough of those reactions where I said, okay, I'm passionate about this and people are responding well. Why don't I try to write? This was July 4th weekend in 2017. I locked myself in my apartment for four days. It was a long weekend. And I wrote more than half the book. Wow, fantastic. It was, it was like a, I pulled out my investment banking style work ethic and just didn't yeah, do anything yeah. but write. And yeah. then over the next few weekends, I finished it. So all of a sudden, I went from not ever planning on writing anything to having a book coming out of July 2017, was very fortunate and lucky to get an agent a few weeks later in early September, Bill Gladstone, who represents Eckhart Tolle and a number of authors like that. So he took this on and he's also my publisher. So this all just kind of came out very organically. And if we had talked two years ago, I would not have predicted we'd be having this conversation. No kidding. No kidding. Well, it's wow. interesting. There's there's so many ways we can go with this conversation from just your, um, I'm just going to lock myself in the room and write this book to, to then just the topic of consciousness, because this is a very interesting topic. It's such a like heady, but at the same time, almost airy topic to some people who might not be comfortable with it. And yet we talk about it all the time. And so how did you go from you were you were doing tennis in school and studying, um, so you said social economics behavioral economics so behavioral psychology and economics and so you must have still had the whole scientific um approach, approach yeah. because you hear this new topic and your first reaction isn't and eh, whatever that's just you know whatever random idea and brush it aside or other reactions of you're a scientist but that just sounds so outlandish that you're almost a little too scared to touch the topic And so what is it? Do you know, were you just naturally curious about that since, since the beginning or like, how did that come to you? Yeah. Like your own hurdles. Did you have your own hurdles to to push through as far as thinking that it was too outlandish to that? You didn't even want to touch it. 
Hmm. I never had that approach where I didn't want to touch it, but I definitely, it wasn't like I converted to a new way of thinking overnight. It was yeah. a process of being exposed to something, being really curious and then forgetting about it and going back to my day-to-day life because we're so biased by what we can see with our eyes. And that yeah. I think only shows us a very small sliver of reality. So I would go back and forth. And then I got to the point where there was so much on the side of new evidence that I couldn't fully go back to my other way of thinking. And I should mm-hmm. also mention in the process, I experimented with people who work with energy and people who have psychic abilities and they were able to do things that the research said they could do. So mm-hmm. I had personal experiences with things that you know, they shouldn't have known things on the phone with me and they couldn't have looked it up. Right. And it, it, it just validated the research I was doing. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So like all, all my life, actually, I grew up around this kind of concept. I think my parents were probably, cause I'm a baby boomer. And so that was like even earlier for them before the new age movement before, you know, it's so like now it's gone from the new age movement and now it's kind of called woo woo along the entrepreneurial circles. And yet, you know, many entrepreneurs are coming to, as well as wall street people are coming to consciousness through meditation, through, you know, the concepts and the recognition that is out there scientifically validated about how meditation affects the brain waves, et cetera. Uh, and how, you know, we are not our brain. Uh, our brain is our tool, right? right. So we, we love the topic and love that you're doing this. Um, how has this, um, well, well, actually I want to back up a second because like you said about like our theme is creativity and creators and the concept, you know, I create daily, the concept of whatever your dreams and goals, um, you can get them done one day at a time if you create daily and that the process of creativity is very closely connected to our consciousness um, and, and that the brain is a tool. And that's why like many creators are, you know, are, some of them are artists and artists will also become writers, will also become sculptors and what have you, because the consciousness behind that is creativity and making something, creating something. And then the specific aspect, you know, whether it's art or writing or music or whatever it may be is just a tool. Mm-hmm. Just like the brain is the tool of consciousness, right? So could you speak to your perspective on any of that related to creativity? Yeah, that's a really important topic. And I think this is one of, so the way I should, I've approached things after I became familiar with the research is to start with the problems that are known in science. And it gets to the creativity because I really want to appeal to the mainstream with this and even the scientific community because we need to shift things yeah. if we want to advance scientifically, creatively, existentially, everything. So I'm starting from square one, which is Science Magazine has said that the number two question that remains in all of science is, what is the biological basis of consciousness? In other words, how does our physical biology, like our body and our brain, produce consciousness? We do not know the answer. And we know that our body's physical, like I'm touching my arm right now. I can do that. It's physical. I cannot touch my consciousness, my mind. It's not physical. How does a physical body produce something that's not physical? Number one, science does not know the answer. And it's one of the big questions that remains. Mm -hmm. Then there are anomalies. I'll call them anomalies, like creativity. How does something just emerge in someone's mind? We don't know neurochemically how that could happen. It's a big mystery and not well understood in terms of neuroscience. How does a creative insight occur? Now, if we look at the brain differently, which is how I don't see the brain as the producer of consciousness. I look at it as a like a processing system or an antenna receiver or a filtering mechanism where there's some broader consciousness existing independently beyond space and time that our body processes and acts as a lens through which we have experiences. 
-hmm. So if we think of the body and the brain as being like that, then creativity could easily be explained as something that is not local to our body that is just being processed. And it might express itself as design or music or, or different things, but it just comes in. And even scientists have had creative insights where they can't really explain where the idea came from, but all of a sudden it just came there. Right. Right. Light bulb moments. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. So um, in a, as a part of that, it's in your research, have you, um, does, does reincarnation tie in with any of that? I have a chapter on that. Okay. And so the way I've structured it is I, I've established that there is this question. I propose an alternative and I should, I should start with something else to help those who are listening who, who might be asking a question of, wait, I'm confused. Didn't we know, don't we know that the brain is producing consciousness? Because if someone gets in a car accident that, and they hurt their brain, then they have memory loss. Like, isn't there a correlation there? So we know the brain produces it. Mm -hmm. Someone takes a, a psych medication and then their brain chemistry changes, then their mood changes. So doesn't the brain produce consciousness? Mm -hmm. This is the potential error. Again, potential error. Right. Just because two things are related does not automatically mean that one causes the other. Right. So right. Mm -hmm. To say that we have a fire and firefighters show up at the fire, a larger fire, more firefighters show up. Right. We do not conclude that firefighters were the cause of the fires in those right. cases. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a relationship. That's a good There's one. There's a correlation, but it's not a causation. And that's from Dr. Bernardo Kastrup, who thinks along the same lines as I do. So we have this correlation with consciousness, but it's not proving it. What, I, what I'm arguing in my book is that there are a number of phenomena, one of which is potential reincarnation of children who have past life memories. And the different phenomena, I argue, are psychic phenomena like telepathy, remote viewing, which is clairvoyance, precognition, animals with psychic abilities, psychokinesis, which is the effect of the mind on matter, mm -hmm. near-death experiences, communications with the deceased, and children who have past life memories. I reason that if any of these things are real, if even one, and I think more than one is real, but if even one is real, we can't explain it if we think consciousness is produced by and limited to the brain, but we can explain it very well if consciousness is more fundamental than matter. That's right. how I look at it. Well, you know, that's so interesting because it's almost similar. It's like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jason Silva, but he's said before, um, we create our world, our world creates us and we also create our world. And what's very interesting, you were saying the brain is like an operating system. And what's interesting is that we've created these technological devices, computers and cell phones, and they work because we work them. So that's a little bit similar to the consciousness. Like, I'm sure our computers aren't sitting there wondering like, oh, how did I suddenly become very smart and have all this input and data inside of me? Um, but like, we're putting in that information. And so I wonder, do you, got, do you explain it a lot based on like, we've created technology, the technology doesn't really work well, okay, except for AI and learning systems that we're creating. Currently, our technology doesn't work so well without us inputting data. Mm -hmm. And do you find that that kind of helps people understand something that's hard to understand? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a really important point. And on the topic of artificial intelligence, we know that we can program machines to do things that are automatic, but they're, it's not a conscious thing that they're doing. If we program it to I don't know, to, to move something across the room. We can program robotics to do ba basic things like that and even more complex things. And the human is the operator that is programming it. There are discussions about whether artificial intelligence can become conscious and then mm -hmm. you know, like Westworld, the TV show that's become very popular where AI gets to a point of complexity 
that it starts to want to take over and it starts to have memories and it starts to become resentful of those who programmed it. The question is, can that actually happen? Can we create consciousness through a complex computer? There's an assumption, I think, in mainstream science that, oh yeah, that can happen because consciousness just comes from matter, like our brain. It's a complex computer and consciousness comes out. So once we create a conscious or complex enough computer, we will create conscious AI. I would argue that we can't do that. All we can do is program a machine to do things. So we can program it to do things, but it will never become independently conscious because consciousness isn't being produced by matter in the first place. Right. Hmm. Wow. So have you tapped into, are, are you familiar with the, and I don't, I don't know if I ever pronounced this correctly, whether it's Curlian or Kirlian photography. Um, I have come across it. I don't discuss it in the book, but it, it has to do with picking up some of these invisible energies or forces that we don't understand through photography that shows that they exist. Right, exactly. So off and on through my, throughout my life, I've been able to actually physically see the, um, meaning physically with my physical eyes, see the etheric field around bodies and as well as auras from time to time. It just kind of depends on how much I'm into deep meditation and clean, eating very clean and that sort of thing as to how clear Clearly, I'm able to do that. And in doing that, you can also see the soul, the form of the soul that is connected to the body during that time. And it has seemed to me, like, I, I don't understand why it doesn't seem like that science ever went mainstream, because it was, there was evidential, it was, they were able to photograph it, you know, they were able to, so, so for the audience who may not be familiar with it, um, it's like if somebody were to lose a finger, sorry for the graphic uh, metaphor, but lose a limb, and they were to take a photograph of the outline of the, or take a photograph of the hand, the actual etheric field showed the full hand, and for a time, for a time after the loss, uh, and not, not like indefinitely. I used the human form, I mean, they were actually using leaves and plants and that sort of thing, but they did do it with humans enough to know that be able to. I think it's uh, called phantom limb or something like that, where limb, you could also yeah, feel it. Where they still feel yeah. it, right. Where they can still feel the limb because it's the etheric field that surrounded the, the limb prior to the loss. Um, and so it's like, it's proven. In other words, the phantom feeling, the photography is proven. And yet the studies kind of stop there. And it just has seemed to me that if people could see the energy fields, you know, is, and become more familiar with them, then, I mean, the, it seems like that would solve so many problems in the world because they can see the interconnectedness of things as well as how everyone has the same operating system in a way of not operating system, but consciousness is kind of tapped in. I think it's a really important point that you raise, which is that I think we tend to be biased by what our perceptual systems show us and think that that is reality, that what our eyes show us, what our ears show us, our, our, sense, and our sensory organs in general However, we know that there are so many things beyond what our eyes typically can see. And unless we can bring them into visual perspective, like you're suggesting, I think that can help people open up because it becomes very abstract if you haven't had an experience yourself. Like if you don't see auras, if you haven't had a near-death experience or a mystical experience, it's hard to relate to someone who's talking about it. And you almost, for many people, they just don't believe it. So if we could bring things into visual context, like you're describing, it would help. However, there is big resistance to new types of technology. We've seen this throughout history. I mean, germ theory was very, resist, very much resisted. The idea that a microscopic thing could make you sick and even kill you. Before we had a microscope, that didn't make any sense. And yeah. now it's commonplace. 
Yeah, right? definitely. And how, how do you explain, like, there's something that you can't see, but it's making you sick, by the how way. You, yeah, how like, how do you, yeah, yeah, it's so, so it would be very interesting, like, like, where does the resistance come from? I think mm -hmm. that, you know, if the masses, there's um, the next one to tackle. Yeah, right. Where does like, all this, because it's, it's invisible, and yet, resistance it's is there. invisible, but it's there. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, because I, I think if the masses were familiar, you know, with, mm -hmm. with that, that there would be more push and interest in, you know, studying it. Like, why aren't we studying that? I mean, I get that, you know, like who's going to, who's going to get reimbursed for paying for research. Maybe that's where it starts. It's like, you know, what company benefits to expend, you know, all the money necessary to do that research, you know, that, because it's not like a medical, you know, phenomenon. And it would be like, if the more that we're able to discover that, I think the more that we're, we would be able to do self-healing and, you know, or assisted healing and natural healing, and all kinds of things. And I guess that maybe that's it. Maybe that's the resistance. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also we have people that are entrenched in a paradigm and to have to switch that late in someone's career when, when that's just been the way of doing things is really hard. And I've talked to many scientists. I have actually my own podcast coming out and I've conducted nice. over 40 interviews with scientists that I talk about in my book. What I, I always ask them, you're a PhD in X, Y, and Z. How, how is it that this isn't being studied in the mainstream? And what they say is, Mark, you don't understand. You cannot discuss these topics if you want to get tenure. You can't even mention it. Wait until you get tenure and then maybe you can talk about it, but you will be ridiculed. It's unbelievable, but that's the mentality. Well, it reminds me of the Buckminster Fuller quote of you can, I pulled it up because I can't say it, but it says you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, you build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And so that's kind of, it's sort of like you're fighting people's natural way of believing things and the way they've believed things for ages and you can't just suddenly say here's a new idea and also it's backed by some scientific research so let's let's just all change our minds now like like you were saying like it was a journey for you to discover this and you had to you had to kind of live in both worlds for a while before you fully accepted the next one that's right and i was immersed in the research personally and it still took me months if not a full year and even it's, it's still an ongoing process but now i've just seen way too much where i can't i can't reason going back to the other direction but I, not everyone will be willing to necessarily do that they might not have the time to be able to do that they might not be willing to open their minds to things they can't see so it's a really good point you raise of how is this going to shift the way that i felt like i could contribute most at this point in my life is to provide a book that gives the evidence to people and maybe that will open certain people up and over time it will help them also through the podcast that I'll be starting, but it's, it, I think it will take many angles in our society to shift things. But for many of the reasons we've discussed so far, we need it to advance medicine and technology and also to appreciate the interconnectedness that we don't actually see and how it affects the way we treat each other. So I heard a lot of people, and you mentioned it too, talking more these days about being curious and curiosity and, um, I'm sure, I don't know if you have an answer to this question or not. It's more just an idea, but do, uh, do you think that maybe, and this is kind of crazy, how do you phrase it? Do you think that maybe there's a part of consciousness and whatever it is that is starting to open people's minds up to curiosity so that we can start discovering this stuff? Because there's a lot of uh, boomers like you who are waking up to new ideas, millennials, my generation, the generation younger than me waking up and just being naturally curious even if that wasn't necessarily how they grew up 
Um, so do you, uh, there's, that's not really a question, yeah, but do you well, have thoughts on that? I do, I do. It's something that I've observed as I've gotten into this world. I've, I didn't even know that it existed, that there were so many people who understood these ideas. At first, it was very isolating because I, I thought I was like on an island by myself. And then I realized that, no, many people have had experiences and they're understanding it. And to your, your point, what I'm realizing is that more and more people are opening up to it. And even things like meditation and yoga, those were really out there 20 years ago. And now it's mainstream. Whether people open up to broader ideas beyond that or not, it's, it's not even as relevant. The fact that people are even moving in that direction in the mainstream, I think, is a, it, an indicator that there is some shift that seems to be happening. And it's, if we're part of the same collective consciousness, if you want to call it that, then it seems like the more people that are shifting their mentality, it probably creates a momentum. But I'm not sure we understand exactly the mechanisms for how it works. Yeah. Yeah, you. Um, I want to make sure we get the name of your podcast. What is the name of your podcast? It does not have a name yet, but on okay. my website, which is my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com, we have a tab for the podcast. So once it comes out, we will announce the name and the, the details. And we'll be linking your site and your book in our show notes. And we'll okay. definitely encourage people to check it out because it's yeah. one of our favorite topics. Yeah, and we'll definitely be, yeah, we'll tune, we'll definitely tune into your podcast. Do you know when it's going to, when you're going to air your first episode? Don't know yet. Hopefully in the next few months, but okay. I'm working with some producers and we're, we're figuring it all out. Okay, awesome. sure. Under, we totally understand that. Um, okay, so on the concept of creativity, um, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you. One is like, first of all, your own productivity. Like when you said you applied the, you know, the, the investment banker mentality work ethic to your creative thing, you know, and as you are probably familiar, there are many creatives who talk about, you know, waiting for the inspiration or waiting for the mood or muse to strike, mm -hmm. um, you know, waiting to get into the flow and that sort of thing. And one of the things that we're big on with I create daily is how the practice of creating daily creates the flow and that creating the flow is up to us because that, that is a consciousness event creating the flow and deciding to create the flow is a consciousness event waiting for it is like blowing in the wind may or may not come. So can you speak mm -hmm. to that in terms of what you've observed with your work ethic and just simply redirecting that, you know, almost antithetical mentality mm -hmm. of concrete numbers, you know, finance, you know, mentality, nothing, woo woo, nothing in the gray, you know, <laughs> and then yet you applied it to the creativity as well as to your research. I mean, what was fascinating about that? I know I'm going on after I asked you a question, but you're applying your, you know, like your concrete analytical mind, and you were also opening your right brain creative mind, yeah. uh, being open to concepts. So just what, you know, yeah. hear you speak to that. Totally. It became a hybrid of the, the analytical mind as being kind of a tool because it's a research book. It wasn't just flowing because it couldn't. I had to cite everything I, I wrote because I wanted it to be scientifically backed. And there's over 700 endnotes because I wanted to put it in the back. So it's, right. it had to be analytical, but at the same time, there was a creative part to it. What I think about flow and creative processes like that is that there has to be a passion or alignment. And for whatever reason, there was major passion there. And I couldn't finish that book quickly enough. Like I was upset that I didn't get enough done that weekend. Even though I finished more than half of it, I wanted to get out. And you're actually reminding me, I, I've, my friends Justin and Jackie run an institute called the Flow Consciousness yeah. uh, Program. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it talks about these ideas of getting into flow and what are some of the things that you can do in terms of your consciousness to enable that. And I think one of the tenets is passion. When yes. you know it's something that's a passion of yours, then it seems to flow more. Yes, 
Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And of course you got, so part of what we love about this story too is that, you know, one of the quotes that we often use um, in our articles and such is, uh, it is in the journey that the way becomes more clear. Um, and so it's like, you didn't, you know, you could say that a year, a year and a half ago, you had no concept that you would be writing a book, that you would be talking to people now, that you would be starting a podcast, right? I mean, it's like, and yet by pursuing the things that you're interested in, that interested you, intrigued you, you know, even bothered you, um, you know, that's how you discovered, because I'm imagining that this is opening up all kinds of opportunities and realms of life that you had never even tapped into before. It is. It is. And it's, it's an interesting process for me as a planner. And I like to know what's going to happen the next day. And now things are just opening up in so many different avenues all the time that I just have given that up. If I just need to take it one day at a time because I couldn't have predicted any of this back when I started. Right. So tell, so speaking of which, so you're working with Dr. Irvin, Irvin Laszlo um, and the Institute of New Paradigm Research, Research as Director of Corporate Relations. Please tell us about that. Sure. So it's a, it's a new relationship. My literary agent, Bill Gladstone, who runs Waterside and uh, is, is publishing my book, he knows Dr. Laszlo personally and represents him as his agent. And Irvin, Dr. Laszlo, has written over 75 books. It might even be more than that. So he's a prolific writer and a very, he's understood these ideas of consciousness for a long time, way wow. ahead of the curve. And he has an institute devoted to bringing that new paradigm, which puts consciousness in a primary role rather than as a byproduct of matter in our body. How do we apply that to all parts of society, not only scientific research, but also business? So coincidentally, I had a talk that I was giving in Italy, where Dr. Laszlo lives, in July. I was speaking at the Science and Non-Duality Conference, where I'll actually be speaking next week as well in San Jose. But it's a great organization that's very much in tune with these ideas, a global organization. And Dr. Laszlo lives not far from where the conference was. So I was able to meet with him in person in July. And we talked about things and realized there was a lot of alignment. He was already endorsing my book, which was amazing to have him behind the book. Um, So, so we talked and he invited me to be part of his Institute and it's, it's a new relationship, like I said, but I was actually just in Italy two weeks ago presenting at his new paradigm research conference where there were scientists from all over who were very much into this topic and are coming to the same conclusions so it was great for me to see in person that there are scientists and some of these I, I wasn't familiar with that are onto this topic. And if you just spent your time at that conference, you would think that this new paradigm is obvious, but yeah. we have to remember that that is the minority right now relative to some of the mainstream. No, well, absolutely. it must be really exciting to be in a very cutting edge field um, of this new research and having these ideas and then also connecting with a community of people who are also coming to the same conclusions and have the scientific backing to like back up their statements because a lot of times like we'll all have these ideas but we're not necessarily scientists or we can't necessarily fund our own research so it's so great that there are groups out there doing that are you familiar at all with um oh what's his name um nasim haramin I, think I am so. familiar. I quote him in my book. Yes. Yeah, that's good. And also um, Dr. Joe Lipton. I'm uh, not Joe Lipton. Sorry, I'm Brody, mixing Bruce Brody. Lipton. Uh, we talked. Joe Dispenza? Yeah. Thank, thank you. Joe Dispenza. You yeah. Go. Yeah. So yeah, obviously you're familiar. We, <laughs> we've, he's amazing. We have um, quoted him a lot in our articles, also posted some of his videos. Um, and Bruce Lipton, I read his books, Wisdom of Your Cells and The um, Biology of Belief. Yes. a few years ago and you said you've quoted him in your book as well 
Um, and, you know, so, it, and, and, and what is that? The study of epigenomic, what is it? Epigenetics, yes. Epigenetics, thanks. So um, important. Yeah. Yeah. So, so could could you speak to that a little bit? I'm I'm guessing you cover that in your books, your book as yes, well. I do mention it when I talk about just health in general. But epigenetics is the idea that things that happened to our ancestors didn't even happen to us personally are carried through in the genes. So the genes change based on someone's experience, and we see this a lot with families that have had trauma, whether it was some kind of genocide that someone survived, but their ancestors went through that many generations later, the person will still have the genes that were impacted by that person who went through a trauma. So the traumas that we personally experience are only not only not limited to our own personal experience, but so they relate to what our ancestors experienced. And then they also seem to have a relationship to a broader consciousness. Yes. Some people call it a soul or whatever past lives can impact this life. So there's so many factors that our, our mainstream medicine is not incorporating. And I think that's probably why our medicine is lagging in many ways in spite of advancements. Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. So are you married? I'm not. And the reason, sorry, the reason I asked you is because um, when it is that we embark on a really different way of thinking, you know, that can affect our personal relationships as well. So I didn't you know like whether it's your family or whether if you were married, I wondered if that has like impacted negatively or positively or no impact. Well, it's, I think it's changed how I relate to people. And what you describe is, is often described after near-death experiences where people are, they're having an undeniable experience, often when their brain is totally off. And that's a whole lot other line of research. And they come back with a totally different perspective on life. And many times they get divorced and they change their job and their priorities shift completely. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And that's a good point. That's a tricky one too. When, when you have an event that happens to you that completely changes the whole way you look at something and yet you cannot relay that to somebody else unless they've either experienced something similar or are radically open-minded. Yeah. So touching in with Dr. Lipton's work and, you know, the, the biology of belief kind of concept and where it is that basically he discovered early on that if you took the the cells from a bladder for instance and put it in the environment of a lung let's say and, and i'm i'm like butchering i'm sure the actual science of it so this is just like approximately a con conceptually um then then the bladder cells actually begin to take on and grow as lung cells because they're introduced to that environment and therefore they begin to morph and so what you said earlier about the the um uh, epigenetics and such. I, I can't, I don't know why I keep tripping over that word. Did I say it right this time? Epigenetics. Epigenetics. Yeah. Epigenetics. Thank you. Got to get it right. Epigenetics. Um, so sort of like on the one hand, we're talking about the cellular memory coming through generations of physiology, of body. And at the same time, we're saying, but wait a minute, that's not where we live. We live in consciousness. And so I think what's happening is there is both are real. The, the cellular memory is actually coming through and it's real and our ability to change that and transform it through our consciousness, through our consciously directing and changing how we think about it all. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, and these are things that are not considered in mainstream medicine, though. When, when someone goes into the doctor's office, they're not thinking in these more abstract terms that, that transcend much of the bodily functions. There are environmental factors that are happening to the person and then also to ancestors and beyond that have to be integrated into health. Right. So these days, there's so much like some of the people we follow, like we love um, um, Tom Bilyeu of Impact Theory. We love um, doc, uh, Dr. Joe and um, Dispenza. Thank you. Uh, sorry for getting on, stumbling on that name again. Names are not my thing, I guess, today, especially. Um, you know, so we're seeing that happening and we're seeing people talk on on this topic increasingly. Um, and I think that 
that is beginning to open up overall for people in general and just like your book is. So this is a fantastic thing to that you're bringing into the world all the more because you have the credentials behind you of your education, you know, highly educated investment banking, etc. So it's fantastic that you're doing the work that you're doing and bringing it to the world in, your, in the way that you are. And I'm sure that's probably, and it's like, like Damani was mentioning earlier, it seems like so clear that the time is right and ripe mm -hmm. where people are ready, you know, for something more for tapping into something yeah. more real. Yeah, I think you're right that the time is is now for many people. And I think there are people that are already open and then other people who don't even know they're open, which is like me two years ago, yeah. who are open, open to logical science, and then perhaps something more than that. But there is still a segment of this population that I think is completely closed. Like in my book, I show CIA documents that have been declassified recently. They talk about the phenomenon of remote viewing which was used for psychic spying during the Cold War. This is yeah. seeing something with the mind without actually being there physically. The documents, in addition to all the researchers who said that it was real at Stanford, in addition to researchers at Princeton and elsewhere, this is a direct quote from the document. Remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Evidence too impressive to dismiss as we mere coincidence. Uh-oh. Pause. Okay, so we blipped off there. So if you could just repeat that last part. Sure, I'll repeat what the evidence says in, in the document. It okay. says, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Again, direct quotes. Evidence too impressive to dismiss as mere coincidence. And implications are revolutionary. So there's evidence like that that is to certain people. For other people, they still need to see more. Uh, but like that's just one piece of, of evidence that I have in the book. And when you put all that together with the other things, I think it's difficult to to tear it all down. But we're starting to see a bit more mainstream coverage. And there was actually an article that came out right before I finished, we sent it to print, my book to print, and I was able to include it, from American Psychologist, which is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American Psychological Association. And it does a statistical analysis of psychic phenomena over the years, remote viewing, precognition, knowing the future before it happens, wow. psychokinesis, which is mind affecting matter, and telepathy. And they published the article suggesting that all these things are real. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the mainstream community responds because that is, it's not, you don't just get an article published in that. I actually interviewed Dr. Cardenia who published the article and he said that he went through a ringer to get it, to get it past the editorial committee. Yeah. But they eventually approved it and it's been published. So I don't know what people can say beyond, did he somehow fool the committee? Right. I think right. it's, it's becomes almost a creative argument to yes. try to dismiss some of these things that are powerful. Yeah. yeah, no. I think it's just sometimes things in our universe present themselves and just we can't like deny that they exist and then we have to figure out how to deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and the universe is like, all right, so um, here's this thing consciousness, it is a thing. Now <laughs> go figure it out for the next <laughs> century or however long it takes. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like in many ways we're children uh, in the arena of discovering it, that which has been there all along. Mm -hmm. um, and we just weren't quite aware of it. Yes, yes. Even with all the research that's been done today, one of my big takeaways is how little we know. And the universe of, of that which we do not know, for me personally, has grown as a result of learning yeah. more. Yeah, no kidding. Dimensions unknown. I mean, this is the thing that, as Devani said, um, all her life and all my life growing up, we have as you know, family consciousness conversations. It's just been a part of who you know, like what we enjoy and what we tap into. Um, and so, gosh, I lost my thought. Um, 
Okay, well, I'm going to shift to the other thing I was going to ask you, and then I'll come back to that. Um, so how has it changed you? How, how have, like, your, your interactions with your, you know, people in your, in your life, your relationships, your relationship with yourself, are you doing meditation, just any of those things, how has it changed you? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I definitely do certain meditative practices. I try to do something on a day-to-day basis, but to me, it's more of a, a, like a living practice to constantly remind myself of the reality. And the reality to me now is, is a, a recontextualizing of identity. I used to think that I'm a body that has consciousness. So consciousness is spawning from my body. Whereas now it's the reverse in my mind where my identity is tied to my consciousness and the body is a vehicle of experience. Mm-hmm. So kind of remembering that context throughout the day is almost a form of meditation and that's shifted everything because yeah. I had an outlook where life had no meaning because once the body dies, it's over. And now it's, wait a second, at the very least, the, the consciousness continues and that is more meaning on its own, forgetting all the other implications with near-death experiences and life reviews that people report where they're judging themselves for how they acted during life mm-hmm. in the near-death experience. So that I, I have much more of a sense of, of meaning, but also a sense of interconnectedness that I didn't perceive before because it, it, when I'm looking at you two over a video camera, it looks like we're separate individuals and that's the, the way we perceive things in the universe. However, there seems to be an underlying consciousness that is consistent and connected Erwin um, Schrodinger, the, the famous physicist, quantum physicist from decades ago, he said, in truth, there is only one mind, which is this notion of a collective consciousness that we are all a part of that, that breaks down the barriers of separation. So that's been a big shift for me too. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Do you think some of the resistance towards an idea like a collective mind or collective consciousness comes from people's um, need to be independent? I'm not saying that that's a wrong or invalid need because I, I definitely believe that we all have independent ideas and aspirations and all that. But do you think that maybe it, um, it brushes too close to people's need for independence and so they resist the idea that everything is connected? I think that's part of it. And I think our society fosters that sense of separation. So when people have grown up in that environment, myself included, there's a bias inherent and it takes an unwinding of, of learning and unlearning things to yes. get into an alternative mode. So I think a lot of it is habitual. Also combined with the fact that we are, like I said, are biased by what we can see and what we can hear. And we're seeing and hearing separation. So that is biasing us on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, we're nearing our end of, of your of the time with you and we don't want to take up more although we could talk with you all day um and love and never grow tired of the things that we could discuss i'm sure but tell us then where it is you want like you're going to be starting the podcast your book was out this month um and so like where do you see you know what how is the horizon of your future changed um and do you see how do you see that unfolding so far Hmm. i really wish i knew i don't know i really don't know where it's all going to take me it, it seems like, I mean, first of all, I'm doing a lot of interviews, which is great. I love talking to different people about this and I'm doing more public speaking. So I've had a number of speaking engagements and I, people have enjoyed the message that way. So that's all new and the podcast is new. So that's kind of a new form of media. But beyond that, I think it will be dependent upon how the, the message is received with regard to the book in particular, because that has all the stuff in one place. And if people really resonate with that, it could probably go in, in directions that I can't conceive of right now. 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So the book and which we are, we definitely already purchased it on Amazon. Can't wait to dive into it. We hope that our audience will please pick up the book. It is by Mark Gober, An End to Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain produ Produces Consciousness. So an end to upside, up, sorry, let me start it over. An End to Upside Down Thinking by Mark Gober. We love that. We're going to thoroughly enjoy it. And please let us know. We would love to have you back on after you get your podcast going. We can talk about that again, see how your book's going. I, Sorry, I did want to ask you one more quick question. Are you still working? Like, is this your side gig right now? Are you still working full time or? Yeah, I'm a partner at Sherpa Technology Group. So that is keeping me busy as well. This is okay. my side passion. So sorry, what, did, what is it that you do there, Sherpa Technology Group? Is that the investment banking or is that something else? Yeah, so we, it's, it's kind of like investment banking. We advise companies that have strong innovations and we help them do transactions if they're buying and selling things. And we help them on their business strategy, but it usually relates to intellectual property and patents. So companies that have lots of patents and inventions and they want to know how their business should be shaped around it. Excellent. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic and so interesting. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us for the I Create Daily podcast. Please let us know what creatives you would like us to interview and what topics you would be interested in hearing more about. And if you enjoyed this show, please leave a review on iTunes. We value your feedback. We read all the reviews and it just helps us get the word out on the I Create Daily podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.